Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, starting verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, of man, And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, once again, glad you're here. Uh, Glad we can be gathered around God's words. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we need you to be with us this morning. As we hear your word, as we ponder what it is that Jesus is saying uh, in a difficult passage, we pray that we would be, uh, that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be receptive. We ask all this because you promised to work through your word. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just last night in my household, we were looking around for something that was lost. And you know the rule, if you lose something, you retrace your steps. Where did you see it last? That's the question. Because this is what happens. When we lose something we really want, we get spun up. We can't, we start worrying about where, what might have happened to it. Instead of stopping and thinking about what is the most obvious place it would be. Now, this is a pretty difficult passage. There's actually a couple of difficult things about this passage, as we'll see this morning. But a lot of people get lost when something difficult comes into view in Scripture. They start going every which direction. What, what could this possibly mean? Could this mean this thing? Could it mean that thing? And then instead of stopping and thinking about what is the most obvious answer to it. And the most obvious thing about this passage this morning is that it is about the power of God. It is about the power of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. And in particular, we'll see two aspects of the power of the kingdom. We'll see First, the champion of the kingdom, and second, the scope of the kingdom. So, the champion of the kingdom and the scope of the kingdom. Look, let's think about the champion of the kingdom. This whole, this whole story begins with the scribes coming down from Jerusalem. Now, if you've been following through this series in Mark, you know that we've seen a few religious leaders along the way, but now the professionals are getting involved. Now the experts, now the specialists have come. 
the Pharisees were very important. They, uh, they thought of themselves as being very devout. But when the scribes show up, these are the guys who know. These are the answer men. These are the ones who've mastered it, who know Scripture, who know what they're supposed to be about. And they show up, and they, and they speculate, how has Jesus succeeded? Jesus has been casting out demons. And you noticed, if you've been following along with us, the demonic forces, the satanic forces, keep showing up, especially in these early chapters of Mark. Over and over again, we keep hearing about Jesus casting out demons. Jesus driving them out. Jesus has confronted Satan already. And this shows up over and over again. So actually, their challenge to him implicitly acknowledges that this is going on. They know that the demons are being driven out. They know that something strange is going on. So they show up and they say, well, he's obviously driving them out by Beelzebul. This is a Greek word that we actually don't totally know the etymology of it. Historically, it's been thought to mean something like Lord of the Flies. That's where the name of that novel comes from. Uh, Though the etymology is kind of unclear. But the meaning is really, what's most important is pretty obvious, right? That whatever this title means, it is synonymous with the Prince of Demons, with Satan himself. So, in a funny way, what, what happens is the scribes show up and they are saying, okay, we know something's going on here. So there must be two options. Either God is really at work in driving out the demonic forces, or the demons have come up with a pretty interesting scheme to trick us. In other words, they've become kind of spiritual conspiracy theorists. Jesus must, oh, this must be some sort of deep conspiracy. The the demons are trying to trick us into thinking they're retreating, and that's what's really going on. Jesus is in cahoots with them. Now, Jesus goes on to point out the nonsense of this argument. But like any good conspiracy theorist, they're not convinced because the counter evidence only proves how deep the conspiracy goes, right? But Jesus points out, of course, that this is foolishness, right? Why would anybody do this? And he uses, he uses several illustrations of this. He says, look, a kingdom, a nation that's divided against itself is not going to be stronger, it's going to end up being weaker. Of course we know that's true. A household, your household is not going to be stronger if it's divided. If there's something that's, that's pulling your household apart, it's not going to be stronger for it. It's going to end up being divided. And so too it is with Satan. Why on earth would Satan do this? It makes no sense. It would really, it would really only in the long run weaken his position. And then Jesus goes on in in verse 27 and uses one of the strangest illustrations he uses about himself throughout Scripture. He says, look, if there is a strong strong man in a house, he's going to hold his house unless somebody stronger comes along and binds him. It's a bizarre image. It It is an image of Jesus matching the demonic forces and Satan himself, kind of power for power. And there's no question, Jesus is stronger. God is stronger than the satanic powers of the world. He portrays himself almost as like a sort of 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger who can just sort of rip the, the door off a car if he needs it. You know, he is, you know, Satan has an army, but God has his Hulk, right? Like there, there's no, there is no competition here. Jesus is stronger. And there's a really strange irony then 
that what the scribes are saying is, look, we think that you're in some deep satanic scheme. And the reality is, in their accusation against Jesus, they are actually playing into the satanic scheme. They're playing into the lies of the devil. It's kind of bizarre. And, and we see this, as this works out, it's worth thinking about how powerful God really is, because this is a deep Old Testament theme. It goes back uh, certainly to the book of Exodus, right? That, that God is strong. God, has a, God reaches out with his strong arm and pulls his people out of slavery. And no one can stand up to it. Not the greatest political authorities. He crushes Pharaoh. The gods of, of that great empire, no, nothing. They're nothing to him. They don't hold a candle to God's power. And whenever we see this along the way here in Mark, and we see it everywhere in Scripture, even in, even in Revelation, the famous you know, battle of Armageddon, all these powerful forces are arrayed against God, but when God shows up, game over. It's all done. There's no real battle. God shows up and it's settled. So whenever satanic forces meet, meet God power for power. Whenever there's a contest of power, it just simply is no question. Yet, and this is so key, on the other hand, Jesus cannot win meeting Satan power for power. Because if he could, why wouldn't he just wipe everything out, right? Why wouldn't God have done that long ago? This gets really to the heart of the question. You see, Jesus has divine right because he's God. He has right as the one who has lived a perfect life where we have failed, where Adam failed. He has right over the world. He has the right to claim power over it. And yet, his justice, God's justice still demands payment. Because even if he were to wipe Satan out, he would still be just. He would still have to meet the demands of his justice. Because this is the thing, you can be powerful and have the right to exercise power. But if you don't do it justly, it's an illegitimate form of power. We know this, I mean, it's an election year, right? We know this because we see this, it's all too common in our own politics on the left and on the right. It, it's all too common that we hear politicians tell us, right, that oh, those others are implicit in, all the, in the problems. We've got to get rid of them, and I will deal with it. But of course, as soon as they're in office, they become complicit with the same problems. This is, this is illegitimate power. In other words, it isn't simply that Jesus can meet Satan power for power and defeat him, though that is true. But see, Satan's deepest power is not that he can stand up to God. But it lies in the character of God himself. And this is so important to see because I know that we're talking about demons and that seems so foreign to our experience. Maybe, that's, maybe you're even a little skeptical of that kind of talk and fair enough. I mean, I can't point to the moment to prove it to you. But what we do see in the Bible, and it's helpful to understand this, is not versions of the demonic forces that are like the exorcist that are like some kind, of, uh, some kind of Hollywood movie. Instead, it's very normal. And most of the time, what happens is not freaky, but it's subtle. 
We've talked about this a few different ways along the way, but it's so important to see that what Satan does is he is not more powerful than God. He's a creature. He's not on par with God. But what he's interested in is putting God in a bind. He is not interested in necessarily in the long run in meeting God power for power. Because, I mean, it should be clear to him over and over again. When, that, when he does that, it doesn't go well. What he's interested in is binding God's character, forcing a wedge between God's love and his justice. Don't you see, that is actually the plan way back at the beginning in Genesis 3, when Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden and approaches Adam and Eve. That is his plan, is to force a wedge between God's love and his justice. Are you going to love your people, or are you going to be just? And it's kind of ironic that some of our deepest critiques in the modern world of, of God and especially of Christianity go back to this tension. You see, on the one hand, we think, who is God that he would question what we do? Who is he to say what's right or wrong? This is something, I mean, maybe we are, maybe we're angry about it. Maybe we disagree. Maybe we think this should be good. Maybe we're offended. Maybe we're ashamed. There may be any number of reasons why we, we think this way, but we are often asking, why would God, who is God to say that this is right or wrong? Why would he say that? But on the other hand, we also blame God for all the evil in the world that goes unjudged, undealt with. Why do horrible men get to perpetrate the evils that they do? Why do things go on the way they always seem to? Why do those that seem to be dishonest get ahead? And we ask these questions, why doesn't, I mean, this is another argument. Why, if there's so much injustice in the world, then how could God be true? But of course, if we hold those two arguments together, that who is God to judge us and why doesn't he judge, they don't make any sense together. But they do, and this is important to understand, they do reflect the sense of the satanic attack on God's character. They do reflect the idea that God is in a bind between his love and his justice. Is he going to love us or is he going to be just? And this is really, in a sense, the genius of Satan. And you've got to give the devil his due. Literally. Because he understands that this is the real question. How can God be lo- love us and be just if we have sinned? And the thing that Satan misses, the thing that our own opinions about God often miss, is how far God is willing to go to be loving and to be just. What is often missing in our own views of God, and certainly the thing that Satan himself misses, is that God is willing to enter in and get his own hands dirty. That God is willing to take what we deserve so that he can accept us, bring us in, love us to the end. And this is the ultimate showdown with Satan, you see, is not the moment that he's driving out all these demons. It's not when he's, he's walking through, telling them to be gone, telling them to be quiet. The showdown is when Jesus decides, 
Okay, Satan, I'm not going to meet you power for power. In fact, I'm going to give myself over to be destroyed. Because in that moment, he reconciles both his demand for justice and his profound love for us. Because it is at the cross that God's love displays itself in being judged on our behalf. That's the good news. That's the core of the thing. That's the thing that has set the world on fire. That is the thing that has changed so many people is the realization that God is both loving and just. And in fact, we don't have to, we don't have to see those in tension because they are reconciled in Jesus. Because God is loving. He's so, his love is so immense. His love is so profound. His justice is so thorough. that he would take it on himself and let himself be destroyed for us. But not without hope. Not without hope, he would be raised up. Because Satan had no claim on him. Death had no claim on him. And this is the power of the gospel, the reason it has so much to say to us, even in the bleakest of moments. Because we know that God is not leaving us to what is unjust. God is not leaving us without his love, but in fact has guaranteed them by his resurrection that they will be our future. So the champion, in other words, of this powerful kingdom is here. And Jesus, again, is here displaying that he has full control over the situation, but they don't even know how far he will take it. How much he is willing to give up to meet the demands of his own justice. And that leads into this conversation, you see. He starts to tell them, you know, look, I'm, I've, I've, I'm accomplishing all this. I'm driving out these demons. And then he says, so you see, all sins will be forgiven. This is uh, verse 28. All sins will be forgiven. And don't miss how big that claim is. Don't miss the enormity of that. Nobody in the first century, like no one in the 21st century, thought all sins can be forgiven. No one thought that. That is how enormous the work of Jesus will be, how thorough he will undo the power of sin. Complete forgiveness. Yet, and you do notice this, and this is where, this is, Another place the passage gets hard. He does say there is one limit to that. There is a, an eternal sin, as he puts it in verse 29. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's fascinating, isn't it, that he is saying this is exactly what the scribes are doing. This is one of these uh, phrases, this idea of an unpardonable sin, an eternal sin, that has sent many Christians off in a lot of different directions. What could this be? And it would be extremely tedious to go through all the different ways in which people have thought about this or misunderstood this and misapplied it and all these other things. This is one of these moments where the obvious answer is right there in front of us. Jesus is saying the scribes are doing it. By rejecting him, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll say, the idea of the Holy Spirit has not been prominent in Mark thus far. He'll, 
It'll show up more as we go on, and it certainly shows up more as Jesus' ministry goes on. But the thing that becomes clear as Jesus' ministry goes on, as you get further into the New Testament, is that the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus. And occasionally we think of the Holy Spirit doing this whole other thing, but you see this throughout the Bible. You see this especially when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John. Near the end of John, chapters 14 to 16, he gives this famous last speech, which is pretty big, and he talks about the Holy Spirit, and he says, look, I'm sending it, and it bears witness to me. If you go to the epistle 1 John, 1 John 4, it says actually the way that you test the spirits is whether they bear witness to Jesus. In other words, this is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit and the, and the work of Jesus are not separated, but the way, work, the way the Spirit works is to drive it deep in us. Calvin put it this way. He says the, that God works in his elect in two ways, within through his Spirit and without through his Word. In other words, externally, we hear the message of Jesus, and internally, the Spirit works within. That God works in those two ways, within through his spirit and without through his word. So that what Jesus is saying, in other words, if we could kind of summarize this idea of of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is he's saying, look, the only unpardonable sin is to refuse what I'm offering. It's It's to not listen to the Holy Spirit. It's to turn away from the gift that's being given you. There is one unpardonable sin. It is not to take up the offer of forgiveness in me. That's what he's saying. Which I guess gets us to another big question about the faith, right? And the exclusivity of the Christian message. And it is true, it's worth saying that Christians and churches through the ages have sometimes misapplied this. And sometimes made the gospel exclusive in ways it shouldn't be. But if what we mean by exclusivity is simply that some people are not part of it, well, then every system is somehow exclusive in some way or another. Every religion, every philosophy. Even if we go to Eastern religions, which, which at least at some popular level are, perce- are perceived as being the most inclusive, in fact, the whole goal of Eastern religion is to exclude yourself from the suffering of the world. And so, in other words, the whole goal is to actually become the most exclusive. Uh, If we think about even various forms of philosophy, especially contemporary secular philosophies that purport to be inclusive, they're always still drawing the line of who really gets it and who doesn't. Who's really frustrating our efforts or who's not? I mean, just this week I was reading uh, a recent book called This Life by... Martin Hagland, he's a Yale philosopher, and uh, he outlines what he, his ideas about a kind of secular faith. That is, that the goals of which are all of us living longer and living better. Which, you know, I mean, I, I, you can't, no one can argue with that hope, right? That people would live longer and live better. And yet, what he points out again and again is religious faith is toxic to that goal. The hope of something down the road, over the horizon of our death, is is toxic to that. And then he goes on to actually lay out a sort of political agenda 
that leads them to some form of democratic socialism. And those who, are, who don't agree on that are, of course, in the way and part of the problem. So while there may not be a hell in his version, there are still those who are excluded. There are still those who don't get it, who are the problem. So every form of thought has, has an exclusivism to it. The question is less how, who is excluded and how are people included. And on this point, the gospel is unique. You see, because every form of religious thought, every philosophical school says that you are included on the basis of your actions. On, on being a good person, on how you treat others, on how you act socially, every form of religious thought and every form of, of irreligious philosophy comes back to, look, you've got to be a good person. Every form of inclusion that they offer is whether you're a good person or not. And it's only the gospel that says, you can come no matter what. In other words, it is not based on what you do that you're included. The only thing we're called to do is receive what Jesus has done. You see, on that front, they couldn't be more inclusive than the gospel. It is the most inclusive form of religious thought. It's the most inclusive philosophy because we're not saying, look, you're good or bad based on how you've performed. You are included in this group. You are included here only if you receive Jesus, only if you trust in him. That is all. If you receive what he's done, that's it. You're part of this group. In other words, it really is the most inclusive form, which is so interesting as it moves into this final uh, few verses when Jesus' uh, family shows up, when his mother and his brothers <laughs> show up. We saw them in last week's passages at the passage at the very end, verses 20 and 21, that they had showed up, and they were telling people he's out of his mind. And now, I guess, they're, they've come to call him out, to set him straight. So Jesus is somewhere with his, with, uh, his disciples, maybe a few other folks, and, and they show up and they say, Jesus, come on out. We need to have a talk. And Jesus refuses. I'm not going out there. I'm not going to talk with them. What's fascinating about this is that even Mary is in this group. That for all the amazing things that Mary has seen, the realities haven't sunk in. There's still more that she needs to realize. Uh, His brother James, who shows up again later in Acts 15, who writes one of the New Testament books, is probably in this group. The other shoe hasn't dropped. Right now, they're just still thinking, this is our big brother who's, you know, too big for his britches. And we're going to set him straight. And Jesus isn't disregarding the fifth commandment. He's not, he's not dishonoring his mother. But he is recognizing that there is a priority to honor God. There's a priority to honoring God even over your father and mother. And what's strange is I think we, we think, oh, that, but when does that happen? But I can tell you after a decade in campus ministry, I heard all kinds of weird advice from parents that dishonored God. 
that, you know, maybe even explicitly told people to violate God's commandments. This happens all the time. Now, maybe some families are more dysfunctional than others. But, remember, we're talking about Mary. We're talking about James the Just. We are talking about people that we ought to, in some way, respect as those who have followed Jesus. And yet still, Jesus sees what they're calling him to do as dishonoring the call that God has on him. And what he understands and what he points out then is that that there is a different group that he identifies with more profoundly even than his mother and his brothers. It is his disciples. It is the beginnings of the church. But he describes them, and this is what is fascinating, as those who do the will of God. Now, I know you might be thinking, didn't you just say that no matter how you perform, no matter what you do, you can be part of this? And this is the, this is the most important thing to take away, probably practically, from this whole passage, is the gospel logic at work here. This is the logic of the gospel, that you are accepted and you are received into God's family no matter what on the basis of what Jesus has done. Full stop. No qualifications. And any effort to qualify that is a rejection of the gospel. And Paul goes into this at length in Galatians, has no, in no uncertain terms. He says, look, if you qualify that in any way, you have rejected the work of Jesus. Yet, yet, God's intention is not to just leave us the way we are. That when God does bring us into his family, he wants to change us. But this is the thing. He no longer asks us to change because we'll be judged. He no longer asks us to change because, look, if you don't, if you don't keep a stiff upper lip, if you don't straighten out, you're going to be rejected. That is never what's offered. Instead, we no longer face God as a judge, but we are received by him as a father. And every good father, every good parent, wants their children to learn what is healthy. Wants them to become good people. Wants them to be shaped into someone that is beautiful on the inside. Wants their character to be formed profoundly. In fact, this is, you might say then that obedience to God's will is the family likeness. In Romans 8.29, it's a a famous passage about predestination. Uh, Paul says, whoever is called is predestined, but this is what he says, predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. In other words, the whole thing that you're called to when you come to faith is to be changed more and more into the likeness of our older brother, Jesus. That what the Father wants for, for you for me, is to be changed more and more into the character of Christ. That because we have been received, not on the basis of what we have done, then we can approach this whole project with a different mindset. This isn't about avoiding getting wrapped on the hand. This isn't about avoiding punishment. This is rather about 
actually enjoying God in a holistic way, in a way that not, doesn't, you don't merely see him, but you're reflected, you reflect him, you reflect the beauties of his character yourself. That you might enjoy him even more. It fundamentally changes the motivation of obedience. And there is a world of difference between those who obey out of fear and those who obey out of love. And I think if you've been a parent for about five minutes, you've seen a little bit of this. Even if you don't have children, even if you even if you've struggled yourself as a, <laughs> someone else's child, you know there's a difference. There's a huge difference when your child or when you respond to your parents saying, saying yes, because you're excited that this is what they want. This is something good. Rather than begrudgingly responding. And so this obedience is not what brings somebody into the family, but it is the defining features of the family. It is, as it were, the family likeness. And so those who are received no matter what, and those who are learning to obey, this creates a whole different family dynamic. You see, Jesus is pointing out that this is, this is like a family, but it's even richer than a family. You see, that, uh, like a family, the bond is deep. Like a family, we're given to one another. One theologian puts it this way. He says, unlike voluntary associations like book clubs, political parties, fans of the opera, garage bands, the church is not made up of people I chose to be my friends. God chose them for me and me for them. They're my family because of God's election, not mine. In other words, there is a kind of givenness like a family to this, which we don't maybe always like. Maybe sometimes it's a little difficult to deal with. But unlike a family, that bond is deeper. It runs deeper. It is thicker than blood. It is the bond of the Holy Spirit. Which is why the church crosses all these different boundaries. It crosses the socioeconomic boundaries. It crosses boundaries of nationality. It crosses boundaries of ethnicity that you can be received no matter what, no matter how problematic your life has been. And God is teaching us this new family likeness. And yes, of course, we're all learning along the way. Like any child, we have a lot to learn. But he is weaving this family together. And look, this is so important for us to understand in the middle of a pandemic. This is essential that we have been given to one another. We have been called to be brothers and sisters to one another. In other words, we are to love one another deeply. So who have you checked up on? Let me just be very practical. Who in the church have you checked up on? Why don't you do that today? Why don't you do that this week? See whose needs you need to meet, even if it's just to meet the need of loneliness. Who have you checked up on? And look, some folks are newer to our community. I, for those who have been around, this is a moment to reach out and say, I recognize that God has brought you here. 
So how can we help you? Maybe, I just, maybe you just need prayer, and I'll continue to pray for you. All of this is to say then that we've seen that the champion of God's powerful kingdom, and we've seen the scope of it. All this is to say, essentially, that Jesus is powerful to save. He is more powerful for his self-giving love than he even is for his divine omnipotence. And the church is the place where that love is put into action, where that love is realized. So I guess our question this morning is how will we put that love into action? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love your church more profoundly than we will ever know. That you have loved your church to the very end. And that you are more committed to your church than any of us, even those of us that are employed by the church. So we pray that you would give us an extra measure of your Holy Spirit to care for one another in our time of need. We ask all this for Christ's sake. Amen.